I knew that if we didn't have professionals and especially optometrists developing technologies, you know, that quite frankly, we'd have a tech company do it for us. Hello and welcome to the OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometrists today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. This is the fifth episode in the series and we are recording on the 6th of June 2023. You can listen to the other four episodes on the OT website, on Apple or Spotify or from your usual podcast provider. In our fifth episode, we'll be trying to fathom the role AI could play in the optometry sector in the future and how it can be used right now. Um, But first, I'll introduce myself. My name's Kerry Smith-James. I'm an optometrist and I work in independent practice in Lancashire. Um, I'm also the clinical multimedia editor for Optometry Today. And with me today... I'm Ian Beasley, head of education for the AOP and also clinical editor of Optometry Today. I'm also an optometrist and a visiting lecturer at Aston University. Well, Ian, um, we've been working on the current issue of optometry today. And as always, there's a plethora of CPD. Could you tell us a little bit about what our listeners can expect? I think one article that is a must read for me is is not about eyes, really. It, it's more about ears. So it's a deaf awareness piece and how we make practices accessible to the deaf community. So Ian, what's the article to look out for? Yes, so the article is Deaf Awareness. It's all about access by Marina Hora. Within that piece, something that really stands out is the author describes a situation where imagine yourself being the only hearing person in a deaf-led organisation, joining a team of, of deaf colleagues where they use British Sign Language as their primary method of communication. And then going into a meeting with those colleagues and not being able to follow anything that's happening and how that would make you feel. And then translate that to a healthcare setting. So imagine going to a healthcare appointment where you're not able to hear what's being said and follow what the clinician is telling you. And perhaps consenting to things that you might only understand a fifth of what they're saying. Um, So I think it's a really powerful piece that will hopefully make practitioners just step back and appreciate how how difficult it is for our deaf patients when they come and see us and accommodate them accordingly. So that for me is is a really nice piece. I totally agree. I mean, what surprised me is is that for many deaf BSL users, that English could be their second or even third language. British Sign Language doesn't follow the same construction and grammar and syntax that written English does. Um, so it's not just a visual interpretation of English, it's its, its own language altogether. And that, that, I, I didn't know that at all. It was new to me too. And, and the fact that because written English might not be particularly accessible, you, you make these assumptions that writing something down, it may suit somebody with deafness, but not necessarily a patient that, that's deaf with a capital D. I would recommend our readers take a look at that piece. Um, it's a good opportunity for me to sort of plug the video content that we've produced as well. So there's an ongoing video about discrimination law and the Equality Act, which I suppose um, the article that you're talking about does um, allude to as well. So there's a whole video on that and it's produced by the AOP legal team. We've also reined in Henry Leonard as well into doing a um, CPD video about record keeping. Um, it's not launched as of the 6th of June but that's coming soon as well so that's one to watch out for. And you can find that at optometry.co.uk forward slash CPD. 
So that's the plugs over for the CPD, Kerry. We should probably make a start with our podcast. We're here to talk about AI. Kerry, I, I can't work out if I'm excited or, or nervous about the prospects of, of AI. And I think it probably in equal measure, actually. It, it takes me back to a time, I think 28 years ago, when I qualified and I suddenly had a bit of disposable income and bought one of those newfangled mobile phone devices. And I remember my dad saying to me at the time, he says, I will never, ever buy a mobile phone because you don't know who's listening to you. And I think that's turned out to be a fairly prophetic statement when you think about um, some of the technology that sits behind mobile phones. But of course, he's relented now and he's got his mobile phone. He's not quite um, got his own YouTube channel, but he, he certainly uses it because it's, I guess it's kind of been forced upon him. And I wonder whether the same will happen with AI. It's, 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 it's coming. And obviously there's some sort of exciting applications that um, will be applied to healthcare. Um, but so how do you feel about it? Much like you, I've, I have um, sort of mixed feelings about it. So, you know, when, when, um, some of the people that invented it start leaving companies and, and um, shouting about how dangerous it is. It does make you a bit nervous because they know a lot about it. But, you know, I have seen some useful applications emerging over the years. It's like any new tool. It depends how you use it. So uh, yeah, I've, I've had a demonstration at 100% Optical from Ultris AI, mm. and they showed me a, um OCT interpretation tool. And you basically, you take your OCT scan, you plug it into their software, it picks out all the things that are wrong with it, highlights them in pretty colours and, and names them. And I was just thinking, well, in the test stream, I sit there and I scroll through all these slices and then often with the patient there. And then I sort of go, well, there's, there's, a, there's a thing and like, there's something there and, and I explain it to the patient. But I've, I've been working with OCT maybe sort of 12 years or so, maybe. And this thing was better at it than I am. <laughs> you know, name, naming things, picking things out. Um, so I can imagine using that and saving time. And it, you know, it, it's as long as you've got a human eye overarching looking at these things as well. Um, I think it would be very, very useful. There's certain things that it will take off us, and I think you know, certainly there, there are certain parts of the eye exam that I, I wouldn't mind having taken off me, like uh, you know, refraction. It's it's a bit dull, but then there's also a fine art to refraction, isn't there? You, while you do that refraction, you get sort of a thousand small bits of information that you use to inform your final prescription without really knowing it. It's just sort of experience and feel sometimes. I think refraction is a good example, isn't it, of where it's still having that human component to, to, to make the ultimate decision is, is key. And I, th I think most of my fear comes out of ignorance, um, which I think is the perfect entry point for, for our guest today to help educate me really on AI and the possibilities. So I'm, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Stephanie Campbell. Stephanie is an optometrist and the founder of Oco Health, a digital eye care startup in Bristol. Stephanie has worked as a specialist optometrist in hospitals, in community optometry practice, and also in industry and regulation. Uh, has also found the time to do a PhD in uh, keratoconus and Down syndrome. And then in 2018, she founded Oco Health uh, to enable patients with chronic eye disease to self-monitor between clinic appointments using an app to help them get treatment at the earliest moment deterioration occurs. So, Stephanie, that gives a, a very brief flavour of, of, of where you've come from, but, but perhaps you could 
give us a bit more meat on the bones as to, to your journey to where we're at today. Yeah, thank you, Rain, so much, and Kerry, for having me. It's uh, it's really, really nice to be able to share the story about we're, what we're up to within AI and how it, it may change optometry, hopefully, and absolutely for, for the better. Uh, so, yeah, my I wouldn't have imagined, I think, when I graduated from Cardiff uh, for the first time in 2010 that we'd be having this conversation. Uh, but I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? When you follow bits of work and life that you're interested in, that you end up end up in exciting places, but most importantly, with fantastic people and creative people doing really special and interesting things. And I very much over my career followed people that inspired me and been really lucky to work with uh, some really incredible people in practice and in hospital, in NHS and health boards, in university. And so, yeah, my, my I've done a whole bunch of, of different things and uh, it's been an interesting and, and probably of late a wilder ride getting into startup and you know it's really a case of put your put your seatbelt on and, and let's go uh, so I've had yeah a portfolio career of a whole bunch of of different stuff and and ultimately now have the main part of my work is is absolutely OCO where we are building home monitoring for patients so that they can self-monitor their vision, identify deterioration early. But it's really interesting when I look at the different parts of, of my career so far and just how every single job was absolutely vital for what I do now. Whether it's community optometry and deeply understanding how clinics run and, or whether it's hospitals and understanding what the pressures are uh, and also whether it's industry, you know, because we work with the optical industry now and the pharma industry now, you know, so understanding how, how that works and how new medical devices like contact lenses get to patients or how drugs get to patients and, and yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I enjoyed university so much in Cardiff, I went back again to to study research and had a really brilliant time doing that and working with, you know, some of those f- fantastic patients and probably the best PhD supervisor who was really inspiring and really patient driven. So I think those are the kind of flavours that came together. And even, for example, when I did some work for the General Optical Council, understanding how regulation plays in. And I guess that brings us full circle back to AI, because that conversation about how do we make sure that the AI that's being developed is the right thing for patients and that it's well regulated and that it's safe and that it's effective and actually that it's moving work for patients, um, experience for patients in the right direction, and that it's moving work for professionals in the right direction. And I think that's probably the reason why I've got so deep into technology over the last years is because I knew that if we didn't have professionals, and especially optometrists, developing technologies, that quite frankly, we'd have a tech company do it for us. <laughs> so I think it's absolutely vital that, yeah, that we have that deep optometry eye care expertise developing the AI that we will and the patients will use in the future. I think you alluded to that point in in your your TEDx talk which I was listening to the other day and I would urge anybody if they've got a spare 16 minutes to to go and 
listen to your, your TEDx talk. There were two things that really stood out for me in that. The, the, the first is the way you describe AI not as artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence and, and just recognising that point about having clinicians that are still in control of, of the decision-making. And, and the second thing was that fairly compelling story of the patient, Sarah. And I think you were a bit hard on yourself because you, you described how you felt you'd failed her and how the system had failed this patient, Sarah. But was that the eureka moment for you in, in starting OCCO? That was definitely my drive to leave my hospital work and go into technology. Um, I still feel, I think, a bit guilty, actually, having having left my patient-facing work or the majority of my patient-facing work. But I knew that I had to do it. I knew that if we were going to develop technology, that was nearly a full-time endeavour. And building a team really took that, um, you know, and raising investments and grants and all the stuff that comes with setting up a startup. That was absolutely, yeah, that was a critical move. Um, but yeah, I do. I do still think about quite a few patients quite often. That was absolutely pivotal because there was just this part of me that was just like, I can't continue having some of the same conversations, some of the same guilt that we've missed opportunities to intervene you know in fact we need to change um and i used to work for somebody who said to me you know stephanie that it's not the professors who will be developing the next technologies it's on it's on the younger ones i mean that is when i was much younger <laughs> but yeah so i think that was absolutely pivotal and actually but more importantly it's what drives me is that having had that patient various patient experiences that have taught me that we need to do something a bit differently and that if we keep doing what we've always done we're going to keep getting what we've always got and that key difference really is, is when you describe Sarah you you were sort of saying that she fell victim really to a, a, a reactive response to healthcare and and what you're really looking to to do through this technology is is deliver proactive solutions to um, patient management would that be a, a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think that's critically what we can do, shift eye care into being proactive, getting the right patients in the right place at the right time. And I think if we can ultimately get patients to see the right eye care professional just before they start having symptoms of eye disease, then we can intervene early and we can protect that person's vision, hopefully, for the rest of their lives. It seems to me quite a brave leap, though, from having really specific um, knowledge, an optometry degree. You're, you're basically, you do an optometry degree and you're going to do something in optometry after that, aren't you? That's what, what we generally do. Um, and then you do a PhD, but then actually going, look, I can go and develop a piece of technology that has AI involved. How do you make that leap to say, well, yeah, you, were you really computer literate to start with or is it just something you've had to learn as you go along? Yeah, so the answer is that I'm absolutely not computer literate. <laughs> Although I am good at the maths and the physics that's needed to communicate with software developers who can then translate that essentially optics and the, the methods that we use to measure vision, which are essentially mathematical and physical, into code that can do that. So that's it's not a massive leap, actually. And then shifting that into AI, I tend to think of AI actually as automation. And again, 
we already have a lot of that in the optical equipment and the software that's in the pieces of hardware that we use every day in optometry. You know, whether that be non-contact tonometer, choosing when to puff the air in, that's automated. That has some degree of, of artificial intelligence to know when everything's lined up. When we have OCTs, as you described earlier, Kerry, there are OCTs already even on our machines. There is software that will line up where different features are and it will automate, well, where is the disk within that OCT and, and how much uh, space have we got around that and what is the CD ratio? What's the estimated CD ratio? I mean, that's automation, that's AI. So I think these things are an evolution, aren't they? Where does the eye come into that? So, you, so there's artificial and then there's artificial intelligence. What, what point does it go from A to AI? Is it a um, sliding scale as opposed to a, a binary sort of change? Yeah, I think absolutely. These things are on a sliding scale. And when you get into the nuts and bolts of AI, you've got on one end automated processes like I described, you know, in a non-contact tenometer, knowing when to fire off a little bit of air. And that's, that uses an algorithm. I mean, fundamentally, AI is the use of, of algorithms. And some of those are very simple and they're quite mathematical in nature. And they're what we call a rules-based system. And that's called good old-fashioned AI. But on the other end of that scale then, what we have is the self-learning models, which is really what's hit the news lately. And then if we go back a bit, somewhere in the middle, we have the type of AI that you spoke about, Kerry, that's doing the automated segmentation of OCTs. And when you pile the OCTs up sequentially and you're looking for longitudinal differences, again, that, that's AI. But it's, it's pretty mathematical, it's pretty straightforward. And when you talk about intelligence, I mean, that's an intelligent thing to do so that we can use our time more wisely as clinicians. Stephanie, you, you said that the leap from, from optometry to technology wasn't so frightening for you. How about the leap from optometrists to the dragon's den scenario of having to try and secure funding? I mean, it's, you've had to, to get backers for OCO. I mean, how, how does that play out? You know, is, is it like a dragon's den scenario where you're, you're there doing this sweaty palm pitch in front of venture capitalists? Or is it not like it is on the TV? I definitely had sweaty palms in. <laughs> I think I probably felt a bit sick. Um, and funny enough, the first place that I pitched was in Bristol and I was walking up the steps to this particular venue. And even now, when I go to celebration events in that venue, I still feel, every time I walk up that stairs, I still feel a little bit nervous and a little bit sick. Uh, so that's conditioning for you. But yeah, it definitely, it definitely got easier. I mean, what's fascinating is, is just how many people wanted to get behind what we do. Lots of people who do know about eye care intimately, because we have various different eye professionals and quite a few optometrists um, and dispensing opticians and best, but also, yeah, also people who were touched by eye disease themselves who have money to invest and are looking for somewhere to put money to invest. Um, lots of people are specifically looking at healthcare. And then there were other people who just knew that this was a good business opportunity that they wanted 
to invest in and, and very excited about changing an industry, contributing to a change in an industry which historically has not seen a great deal of change. So the Snelling Tower has been around for like 150 years. So lots of people were quite excited about the idea of making that accessible and what that might do for eye care. I think that's a good point to explain to our listeners because they'll, they'll be in suspense right now um, unless they're currently googling OKO, which is OKKO. What does it do? What does what have you developed? Well, we have developed essentially a lot of optometry and vision science on on a smartphone. So we have put um, on a practical level visual acuity distortion it's not quite the same as Amsler but it measures distortion and then things like contrast color and almost like low contrast visual acuity for example that's useful in presbyopia we've put that on a phone um, and we do that by making vision science embedded video games little puzzles on the smartphone and we get people to touch what they can see so a lot of this is based on basic principles of vision science, like, for example, vanishing optotypes, like what you get in the Cardiff cards or the Teller cards for, for children and babies. But we take that vision science, put it on a phone. And for example, we can control the screen brightness. And we look at things like colour balance, things that you wouldn't necessarily think about in the phone. And, and fundamentally as well, we know how far people are away from their phones. So you've got all those basics of optometry, vision science, and and that's what we do, make a platform. And that, that's the kind of physics of it. But what we really do, I believe, is make a platform that has the ability to empower patients with their own data. Because this is about moving that monitoring into the hands of patients. So for people who have chronic disease, which is the people that we make this technology for primarily, you know, it's allowing them to self-monitor their vision if they've got macular degeneration three times a week. They actually get access to that data and so does their optometrist or, or ophthalmologist. And so this is about empowerment and it's also about engagement, making eye care a bit more fun as well and getting really high quality data, which is kind of what I'm obsessed about. Yeah, it worries me that that does sound an awful lot more fun than my eye examinations. <laughs> Well, it's only some, it's only a small component. And I think, you know, that's what we thought when we bring some of optometry into the home, it can't look like an eye chart. You know, lots of people have put eye charts onto phones, onto computers. And during the pandemic, that was absolutely critical. And I think for some things that will still need to remain. But if you're going to get a patient to do it on a very regular basis, as you need for home monitoring, it's definitely got to be fun. And that's where I think, you know, we're a little bit creative and a little bit cheeky with, with how we do things. Thinking about the data, Stephanie, that comes out of the app. So some of that will go locally to, to the optometrist or ophthalmologist and also to the patient. And then at, at the other end, are you you're collecting all of that data yourself? So you have a big data set. And it, is that what's informing the development of future technology in, uh, in terms of AI? How are you utilising that big data? That's absolutely right, Ian. We are collecting that data about their vision. Um, so the kind of data we collect would be, for example, what are they touching on the screen? So when there's a, a bunch of optotypes appear on the screen, for example, in visual acuity, some are bigger and some are smaller. So we're looking at, you know, what do they touch? What do they miss? What do they nearly touch in time in the game? And 
we look at that data in conjunction with things like what phone do they use, for example, and how far are they away from the screen. And by computing all of that, we're able to, first of all, on a clinical level, provide back the visual acuity in Logmar that the patient's seeing or that they've seen in that session. And we're able to look at that data longitudinally. And so we reduce a lot of the, the data that's available into a very basic Logmar score. And that's really useful. Um, if you want to look at trends over time, is the treatment working? Are they getting better? Or has, for example, a deterioration occurred? Has wet AMD reactivated? And, and is that vision dropping? But what we're now beginning to do with Oxford Eye Hospital, Nottingham Hospital, which, by the way, was where I did my pre-reg. So that's quite exciting to go back. And, and then also with the Macular Society. So we're working with them to take all the data that usually um, we would reduce down, but actually put all of that data through a machine learning algorithm to see if we can predict when the patient actually needs to, to visit the hospital. And what's the patient seeing it there? And are they, are they getting a logmar score or are they getting something that's more um, a, a layperson's piece of data to tell them about their vision? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because I thought they would want the latter. But when we worked with the Macular Society patients, this is going back probably back to um, 2020, what was apparent very clearly was that the patient said, well, we want to speak in the same language that our optometrists and ophthalmologists use. I mean, obviously, Logmar would be absolutely what's used within hospital eye departments. And they said, we don't want you to dumb this down for us. We want to be able to have an equal conversation about our vision. And I want to be able to use the words that the ophthalmologists understand. Uh, so that was completely unexpected, actually. And that is why we kept this in Logmar, which I did not expect to do. And how does an optometrist and, and a patient get involved in this? You know, is, is it led by an optometrist that then distributes this technology to their patient base? Or is it a patient that will seek out that that technology for themselves? What's, what's the journey from both sides? Well, so far, we've been working with the Macular Society and we've been using uh, that group to do our research and development. But we're now on the verge of, of launching clinically. So we've already got this in um, to several hospitals. And what happens there um, is that the eye care professional will prescribe to a patient. And AMD is the primary thing, as I say, that we're, um, that we're doing at the moment. So they will prescribe um, to the patient who downloads it from the app store, whether that's the Apple app store or the Google Play store. And they just put in a special code and register and that attaches them to that clinic. Uh, they play three times a week and then both the eye care professional and the patient can review the data. So obviously it's mainly the patients reviewing the data because eye care professionals are usually too busy. But it does mean that when that patient comes back in for their in-person appointment or if they have a teleophthalmology appointment, we imagine in the future, that that data will then be brought up so that there can be a real conversation about how the patient's been doing between those in-person visits. Uh, so we don't see this something going forward that will replace appointments, but we see this as something which will help us get the right appointments at the right time and then help better conversations uh, and more evidence-based conversations when we see really how a patient's vision has been in that period. I suppose this, this kind of thinking has been in play um, in my area um, where we've got glaucoma virtual clinics. So, you know, the patient still has to turn up to a place and have, 
you know, fundus photography and pressures done and their visual acuity measured, but that all, you know, the field's done. And then that, but that gets all reviewed by an ophthalmologist remotely. So I suppose it's 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 along those sorts of lines, isn't it? The ophthalmologist or the optometrist can can look at that and go, yeah, I need to bring this person in, or no, I don't. They're all right for a bit. Let's see someone else. So it's, it sounds efficient and time saving. Yeah, Kerry, that's exactly what we wanted to do, and essentially automate with the AI that process of observing the data and just comparing one week to the next and saying, has anything changed? You know, is this a low risk patient who looks like they've been the same for a year and that patient would do well to see their optometrist in primary care? Or hang on, is this a patient who over the last two weeks looks like they have a pattern of interacting with the phone that is similar to, to you know, 100 other people who have deteriorated? in the previous two weeks. Let's get this, let's be proactive. Let's get this person in and let's not have them wait two months. Let's get them in next week. Where if we're going to give anti-VEGF, let's give it quickly where it's more likely to work. And, and how far along that process are you with, with Oxford and Nottingham in, in terms of having the, the system joined up where the patient gets flagged, the, the, the person within the hospital is then in a position to intervene and, and get patient X booked in for their potential treatment with anti-VEGF? So there were two parts to this big project. Um, the first part is about training uh, a data set. And the second part, which we haven't started yet, that will be in 2024, is about testing an algorithm you've developed from the data set. So if we go back to that first part, which we started back in February this year, we are onboarding, and I think we're about halfway through now, 500 patients who are regular frequent flyers at the eye clinic and they will they have oco prescribed um onto their phone and they play three times a week and so we're getting that rich data set so they're doing visual acuity three times a week and they're also doing distortion so it's not quite the same as the amsler grid um it's a circle of dots and one of the dots sits outside the circle and they have to identify which dot's sitting outside the circle so if you have visual distortion you're going to take longer to do that it's going to be a more difficult task you're going to make more mistakes and that kind of thing so that's the data that we have coming in three times a week and then that data is tagged by the ophthalmologist um, to say, well, did we, do a, did we do a treatment? So when that person came into hospital, was there any treatment done? And if so, why? What were the, the clinical indicators? You know, was it that they had a drop in their EDTRS, you know, their eye chart vision? Was it that they actually did have more fluid in the row CT than what they had before? And very crucially, what the AI will do then is have a look at the time series data coming in from the OCO app and say, what were the patterns in that data that indicate that the patient's stable? And for the patients who didn't need any treatment, they had a certain pattern of OCO data that was quite stable. What does that pattern of stability look like? And then on the other hand, for the patients who were treated with anti-VEGF, what was their pattern of OCO data? When did their vision start to change? And what I'm fascinated by is that it's not the visual acuity that changes quickly. It's actually the way that they play the app. So it's about how long do they take to see that? You know the way whenever we're measuring vision on the eye chart and we'll often write down, you know, six over nine slowly or six over nine minus. So 
essentially what we're doing at Uku is quantifying that minus or quantifying that slowly or quantifying the six over six just. <laughs> what does that mean? And so, because as optometrists, we have all this qualitative data kind of written, I think, in our souls. <laughs> and we get a sense of, hang on, that's not as good as what it should be, right? So what we're trying to do at Oku is collect all of that data and really take that sense and make it mathematical and bring it to the surface and use that as a mechanism of determining somebody is somebody's vision stable. And when you look at that nuanced data, that's where the patterns are. So what we've noticed, which is really exciting, is that in patients with, for example, retinal vein occlusion, when they are due, when they really need another anti-VEGF, their vision actually becomes more unstable. So some days they have better vision and some days they've got worse vision. Now their mean, their mean and average visual acuity is the same, but they just have good days and bad days. So actually capturing that fluctuation, I think, is the secret to understanding people's vision better, understanding where deterioration occurs. That's really interesting because as an optom, and I'm sure a lot of others are thinking the same thing, it, when, when you see a patient with macular problems, the acuity I write down depends on how, how much time I've got to let them look at the letter chart. You know, if I give you a bit longer, you'll get, you'll, oh yeah, oh, she's got another letter, oh, another one, you know, it just... Same with, with the reading chart as well. If I give, if I give them a bit longer, sometimes they, they get a bit further and it's, that's, you've kind of um, automated that sort of feeling that I get when I'm doing acuities. Yes, because it's really unsatisfactory, isn't it? When we know that there's more information that that person's trying to relay to us, but we just have no way of recording it, really, at the moment. And if we line up half a dozen people who were all six over 12, they all see the world completely differently. And I think that's the thing that I got obsessed with when I was doing my PhD and when I was working in keratoconus clinics in Bristol was that the vision was so subjective and that the eye chart was such, you know, if I may say so, a bad way of measuring vision in the real world. And yet it was kind of all we have. And so that's why at Oku now we are beginning to work with pharmaceutical companies and contact lens companies who want better ways to capture vision improvement when their when their technologies work and when their drugs work. And I think that's really important because as you, as you said, Ian, you know, I started thinking this is about picking up deteriorations, but now I realise it's also about picking up improvements. And so, for example, we've got an asset that we're developing for presbyopia. So you can imagine that could be used in the optical world, in spectacles as well as in contact lenses for um, understanding when someone needs a particular shift in, in their prescription. And, and did that did that work? Do you think it'll, it'll inform our referrals for cataract as well? I hope so. Because again, this is another area, isn't it, where we have a feeling listening to the patient's symptoms and a feeling when they're interacting with the eye chart and we want to convey that, don't we? So we end up writing referral letters where we're trying to convey what is essentially somebody's reduced contrast sensitivity or glare or something. And we're kind of, yes, we, we definitely need better measures for that. Um, but imagine we could bring a patient, imagine we could prescribe 
a self-monitoring tool maybe once a month for a patient who was like borderline cataract or who wasn't sure if they wanted cataract surgery. Um, imagine they could then self-monitor themselves and go, oh, hang on, I've tipped over into a point where 75% of other people would have cataract surgery. And then if we think about it, you know, this could be hugely time-saving for optometrists and for ophthalmologists because we could teach people remotely what a cataract operation entails. We could educate people before they get to the practice or before they get to the hospital on what the consent procedure is going to be like. If they can tell us by data, right, I'm taking these drugs uh, for my general health, okay, well, that, that impacts upon your risk for cataract surgery, you know, so you're into, you know, you're into risk stratification, you're risking into, you're into personalization. And this is where I think the true value of automation and AI is in, you know, two things. It's in standardization, which we really need in, particularly in NHS cataract surgery, um, particularly in second eyes and stuff like that. And then the second thing, and this gets me more excited than standardization, is, is personalization. And, you know, what, what's important to that patient's vision? What do you guys think that where might this go? You know, if we could have really personalised eye care and personalised decision making, really empowering the patient to know what's available to them. What do you think? Something that you said in the, in the TEDx talk about, imagine if with Sarah, we'd been able to pick up the fact that she was no longer going out, you know, a social media feed had suddenly gone quiet. So that suggested that she was not feeling comfortable was that because she was having vision problems and mood and, it, you know, her mood was um, being affected by, by her condition? There's all these other factors beyond visual acuity that affect a patient. Um, I don't know how realistic those things are in the future, but it's um, something that you were outlining in your TEDx talk, which I thought was just really intriguing. Yes, absolutely. I think that is, you know, that's a true personalisation in whenever we begin to bring in other aspects of the patient's life and and I think that there's huge potential and and I think we can choose to do that as a profession and as an industry if we if we do that if we have the right guardrails in place which was I guess the other half of my TEDx talk you know was about okay you don't just want all the data and, and you need to be able to protect that and I think that's also what we're quite obsessed with at OCO you know we've been through um, a period where we've been embedding the necessary regulations uh, and and certifications into the company. You know, so a big one is is in software medical device, but another big one is in data security, and the responsibility that manufacturers need to have when they're building data products to really make sure that patients are safe. And where we get extra data, we just need those extra protections in place because ultimately these things will only work if patients and professionals can trust them. Mm, there's a tipping point between mind-bogglingly useful and getting a bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> there is, there is, because we haven't made an AI yet. Um, occasionally, I will, yeah, I will give have to give patients a call and say, oh, I've been looking at your data. Did, did you think there was a problem in your in your right eye? How's your vision? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I think it's getting worse. Okay, shall we do something? And it it, it is amazing and powerful um but so far i haven't had any complaints <laughs> from patients that they thought it was creepy when we've been home monitoring but but you can see where you can see that it has to be 
done very carefully. And funny enough, that's actually what on the AI side, when it's an algorithm that will identify deterioration, uh, we're actually working really closely with the Macular Society to develop an interface that's the right interface for patients. And we still don't know, is that going to be part of the app? Is that going to be a phone call? Is that going to be an email? Because it's got to be right for a population that could be seen as vulnerable and really do need looked after. Well, what, what, I, what I meant was, uh, uh, it, currently it doesn't sound creepy at all, it sounds really, really useful, but it's where you suggest that it can dovetail with other parts of your life, um, you know, like, like for example, it notices that you're stop, you've stopped posting on social media as much and therefore you're maybe feeling a bit, a little bit depressed and therefore we're going to intervene with, with you know, a clinician's going to ask you what's wrong and it, it's, it's that sort of, it's, it's that area where it, it starts talking to other technologies um, that it can, that, that, yeah, it's the regulation outside of specifically what you're doing um, that we need to look at. Yeah, that's right. And I think social media is a particularly difficult place. But if we go back to the other aspects of the data that can be used, you know, some of those, for example, are in um, GPS. You know, how, how much has that patient been walking? You know, are they still doing as much walking or are they more reliant on their car? Um, do they tend to go out at night time or actually one of the things that our patients will do when they're struggling with their vision is that they'll reduce walking at night time and they'll reduce driving at night time. You know, those things are collected actually on our smartphones already. And with permission to link that data, that could be really powerful because these are the things that patients tell us anyway when they're in our, in our clinic rooms. Just going back to some data that you've already collected and, and presented at Arvo last year, it, it seems that the, the compliance with the technology is, 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 really, is really good. And do you think there's a certain amount of a mix of enjoyment of, of patients collecting their own data, but also having that, that reassurance that they're able to monitor things for themselves um, and how that impacts upon patient well-being, I'd imagine, would be, be positive. I think when I was in practice handing out even an Amsler chart, you know, the fact that the patient felt that they had some tool to take control over their, their own condition, I think, was quite a powerful thing in itself. Um, so I don't know whether you've got any insight into how patients feel about it. Yes, and that's actually a core part of our design. Uh, so I've been working nearly for four years with a colleague called Sally, and she is our product owner, product manager. Um, so she's uber focused on the patients and what it is that they need. And she's been doing this with us for, for some years now. And I remember the day that she came into the office and she said, Steph, I've got it. She had this post-it note with control written on that she said patients need to feel in control she said the more patients i speak to who have macular degeneration they do not feel empowered they do not feel like they have a sense of control over anything they feel like they're on a conveyor belt so how can we use oco in order to make patients feel more in control more empowered to have the right conversations with their eye care professionals but also feel like they're doing something and genuinely be able to, you know, even though they do use this app for 10 minutes, three times a week, which is not, it's not a large amount of time, but it's also not completely insignificant either. Uh, so there is some commitment involved from them. 
And how do we take that 10 minutes and how do we really maximise what that patient can get out of this? And I think that's where our current focus is, is like on how do we get minimum effort in and how do we get maximum output? So, for example, we've got educational materials at the moment and what we're doing is personalising those and and sending by push notifications articles um, that are going to be, this is what we're working towards, most useful for, for that patient. So, for example, if they don't drive, let's not send them stuff on, on driving. Um, and if their vision has begun to change, let's send them articles and personalised insights that are more useful to them. And um, although a lot of the, the patients you're working with are, are in the geriatric population, do you, do you see a role in, in PEDS as well with um, amblyopia? And, and if so, would that interface need to work in a different way or appeal in a different way to a younger cohort? Yeah, absolutely. And we've had an amazing project running where we've been developing a, a paediatric vision monitoring app specifically to take a child through an amblyopia treatment pathway, that initial part of the pathway, while they might be getting used to new glasses or getting used to a patch. And those children um, were self-monitoring. And that that's a, a study that we started last year at Moorfields Eye Hospital uh, with their paediatric team. And, and funny enough, it was actually paediatrics that, that gave me the inspiration to, to do this because there was a young, uh, a young boy who had like plus eight or so, plus eight glasses, and I was facimetering his, his glasses. And he was a really cheeky little fella, like an absolute pleasure. And he had spotted my iPad on the shelf and nicked my iPad and he was sitting there. And I, I mean, this was in the days before, you know, I had a password, you know, right now I think my data protection colleagues would kill me if I didn't have a password on my iPad. But he took my iPad and he was able to find the YouTube icon, even though he didn't have his glasses on. It was such a symbolic icon that he was able to see it. But when he clicked into YouTube and I watched him, he couldn't navigate around because he didn't have his glasses on. And that was a penny drop moment for me where I thought, okay, this is kind of similar to uh, what's been going on for a long time in vision science labs, you know, in terms of the optotype design, vanishing optotypes, and in terms of the psychophysics. Let's put some stuff on the screen, which is easy to see. Let's put some stuff on the screen, which is really difficult to see uh, and everything in between. And then let's look and see what people interact with. And that's what, you know, that same application works for adults as it does for children and everybody in between. And that's been the really interesting feedback that we've got from the app is like, oh my goodness, you know, my child can do it or my great grandmother can do it. And yeah, that's, that's really fun. You know, having, having something which doesn't rely on letters doesn't quite feel like you're having your eyes tested. And that's what it's all about. I wanted to ask you actually about the the elderly cohort and computer gaming, um, because you know I, I I'll gamify I'll gamify absolutely anything I love it, um, you know I was brought up in the early Atari um, playing Pong you know that's that's how far back my my gaming goes, um, and uh, but there's so many patients that I think I need to do a visual field. I'm not sure this person's going to be able to do it, even if I explain it really, really well, because they're a little bit old. And I, I prejudge their ability on that visual field test. 
So how how have the older cohort gotten on with playing a computer game? It's not it's not necessarily something that they've they've done before. Well, the short answer is surprisingly well, and the reason for that I think was because we had and we still have a patient led design approach. So a bit like Sally coming in saying, you know, we we need to we need to give them a sense of control. We also have worked with patients to co-design how they should interact with the app. For example, how do they understand how to use it, what we call the onboarding procedure, learning to put a patch over one eye and measure each eye separately, and then learning, well, what do I need to do? And there's certain, I mean, this has been absolutely fascinating. It's basically a bunch of social science and there were procedures and like app developers across the world use these. Um, But on the very best end of that, it's patient-led design. So you're actually sitting down, understanding how do they interact with their current apps? What do they find easy? What do they find hard and why? And then you build and design along those principles. And so for example, they choose um, our color schemes and they choose what symbols we have. So doing that with older people who have visual impairments has been, I think, the reason why we've got pretty good engagement. However, we just have to keep striving to make that better and so that we can reach more and more people. Uh, so, and what we found was that patients who already have a smartphone absolutely find that the easiest, uh, or if they have an iPad that they use very frequently. Stephanie, I, I sense we could talk all day about this, but um, you've got TED Talks to give, you've got a company to run. Um, perhaps we could just just finish off with, with, with one point, if that's okay. Um, you, you've described the collaborations um, within the UK with Moorfields and Oxford and Nottingham and so on. Um, any ambitions overseas and particularly thinking about countries with, um, that are economically deprived? where Occo could have a role there. Yeah, absolutely. So we also work with LV Prasad Eye Institute in Hyderabad in India. And from the first time that I visited there, I knew that that was a place where this technology could really be used. And so our focus on Android and making that capable of, of measuring good quality vision, despite there being a million different Android screen sizes and brightnesses um, was something that we spent a lot of time working on in 2020, 2021, so that we would have a technology that could serve emerging markets as much as developed nations as well. I think that's critical for eye care. I think think that's a great place to to wrap things up. And I think we should probably put a date in the diary for five years time and, and, and see where things are at, because I sense it will be in a very different place in 2028. So, Stephanie, thank you very much for giving up your, your time today. Thank you so much for, for having me along. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to be able to discuss these things with you and, and get the word out to, um, yeah, to our professional colleagues across, across the UK. Thank you.